0: Well, we've seen over the last several weeks in the Gospel of Mark uh, that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for his impending death. And as he's made his way to Jerusalem, he's been teaching his disciples that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and crucify him, but that three days later he will rise. And of course, they don't understand what Jesus is talking about because they think he's going to be a conquering king, not a suffering servant. And so he makes his way to Jerusalem and and before he reaches Jerusalem, we saw last week that he heals the blind man, Bartimaeus. This was the last miracle that Mark records for us before Jesus enters Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week. Now Mark doesn't record for us everything that was going on revolving around Jesus as he drew near to Jerusalem. But the other Gospel accounts tell us a little bit more about what was happening. And it's important for us to know, in order for us to see the setting in which Mark 11, 1-11 happens, it brings out the drama of the moment. The city of Jerusalem is ablaze with talk about Jesus. Is this Jesus actually the Messiah, or, or is he simply a prophet, or, or is he simply a miracle worker, or is he a fraud? See, just be- a little bit before this, uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11, and the religious leaders are so dis- disturbed by the crowds flocking to Jesus that John tells us in John 11:45 through 57 that they were plotting to kill Jesus. Not only that, they're even plotting to kill Lazarus, the one who he raised from the dead, just so they could try to cover up Jesus's miracle. Many are wondering whether or not Jesus will actually come to Jerusalem for Passover. Because at the end of John 11, we're told that the chief priests and the Pharisees gave orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they could arrest Jesus. So tensions are very high in Jerusalem. You have many Jews who are believing in Jesus and following him, but you also have many who hate him and believe him to be a fraud like the Pharisees. There is unrest surrounding the person of Jesus. And so what does Jesus do as he draws near to Jerusalem, knowing that there are many who are scheming to have him arrested and killed? knowing that there is a a major unrest and tension. Does he enter Jerusalem secretly? No, he enters freely and openly as a king. This is the environment as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And despite all of the noise, he is utterly intentional and completely focused in how he chooses to enter Jerusalem. Jesus is preparing to enter as a king. That's what we see in verses 1 to 6, the preparation for the coming of the king. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, "Why are you doing this?" say, "The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately." And so, as he draws near to Jerusalem, he he instructs two of his disciples with specific details. He he predicts or shares with them this pre knowledge that he has. They find a colt, and that this colt they will find a colt, and this colt has never been sat upon. He tells them to untie it and bring it to him. And, and if there's any pushback from people, explain to them that the Lord has need of it. And in verse 4 to 6, that's exactly what happens. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. All that Jesus said they would find and happen, in in fact, happen. Now the question is, why does Jesus do this? Why does Mark record this for us? What's so important about Jesus predicting that there's going to be a donkey in this town and he sends two disciples to go and get the donkey? Well, there's several reasons for why it's important. The first is this. Jesus in the Gospels is meticulous in fulfilling the scriptures, fulfilling God's plan. Zechariah 9, 9-10 is a prophecy about the Messiah, and this is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey." on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, by Jesus choosing to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he was proclaiming to all of Israel that the scripture from Zechariah was now fulfilled. The king has arrived and he is mounted on a donkey. The scripture has been fulfilled. Secondly, Jesus, by predicting that there would be a donkey and sending his disciples to get the donkey, is demonstrating that he's in control of the situation you see very soon Jesus is going to be betrayed mocked flogged crucified and buried but he's demonstrating through his pre knowledge about the donkey that he is in fact in control and all that will soon to take place though it will be a surprise to the to his disciples is not a surprise to him You see, Jesus knows the religious leaders are about to kill him, yet he enters Jerusalem publicly, fearlessly, and in a way that would have only further offended them. He doesn't enter secretly. Why such confidence and boldness? Because he knows that his hour is at hand. He's in control. Several times in the Gospels where the Jews and the religious leaders Uh, try to get at Jesus, even they they try to seek to stone him, Uh, we're told over and over again that Jesus left Jerusalem and departed. Why? Was he scared? Absolutely not. He knew his hour was not at hand, but now he knows his hour is at hand. See, everything that was directing Jesus' decision here in Mark 11, demonstrates his control and he was fulfilling the will of god very shortly things will appear out of control but everything that is going to unfold is in fact under his control it is in fact the very will of god do you remember jesus in the garden of gethsemane in matthew 26 verses 55 to 56 they've come to arrest jesus And do you remember how he responds to them? At that hour, Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You had an opportunity to to seize me all the time when I was teaching in the temple. But you never did. Why? Because all that has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Everything that is unfolding in Mark 11, Jesus is demonstrating that it's under control and it's all a means to fulfill the scriptures. Thirdly, Jesus at this moment is choosing to reveal himself as the king of Israel, the son of David, and that's why he instructs his disciples to go and get a donkey. In the ancient world, riding a donkey was a kingly act which identified Jesus with the royal line of David. And so by getting a donkey and riding the donkey, Jesus was making a declaration of who he was, the king of Israel, the anointed of god this is how also the people interpret it in verse 10. blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david luke's account further demonstrates this in luke 19 we read this as he was drawing near already on the way down the mount of olives the whole multitude of of his disciples began to rejoice and praise god with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying blessed is the king Who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples that is teacher the disciples are are proclaiming that you're the king of Israel but you know that's not true so rebuke them for making such a claim and how does Jesus respond I tell you That if these were silent, that is if my disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out and proclaim me king. But not only is Jesus revealing that he's the king of Israel, he's also revealing the kind of king that he is. Jesus choosing a donkey demonstrates the kind of king that he is. Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, gentle, and mounted on a donkey. He's not just king, but he's a humble and gentle king. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has sought to teach his disciples the ways of his kingdom. That gentleness or greatness is defined by servanthood. Humility is the way to glory. And here, Jesus is personifying this in how he comes to Jerusalem. This is his triumphal entry. Yet compared to worldly kings and politicians, there's nothing all that grand or triumphant about what happens here. He doesn't enter on a war horse dressed in royal garb. He doesn't come as some military commander. In fact, the donkey he rides on, he doesn't even own. As Matthew Henry said, Christ went upon the water in a borrowed boat, at the Passover in a borrowed chamber, was buried in a borrowed tomb, and rode on a borrowed ass. He was a king but a humble king and he accomplished more as a humble king than all the arrogant kings of human history combined listen as the church father christostom says he erased the curse he triumphed over death he opened paradise he struck down sin he opened with the vaults of the sky. He lifted our first fruits to heaven. He filled the whole world with godliness. He drove out error. He led back the truth. He made our first fruits mount to the royal throne. He accomplished so many good deeds that neither I nor all humanity t- together could see them before your minds and words. Before he humbled himself, only the angels knew him. After he humbled himself, all human nature knew him. You see how his humbling of himself did not make him have less, but produced countless benefits, countless deeds of virtue, and made his glory shine forth with greater brightness. God wants for nothing and has need of nothing. Yet when he humbled himself, he produced such great good, increased his household, and extended his kingdom. Why then are you afraid that you will become less if you humble Yourself. This is who Jesus is. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He not only teaches humility, but he demonstrates it by his life. These are the reasons Mark tells us that Jesus instructed his disciples to get a colt, that the scriptures must be fulfilled that he's demonstrating he's in control and that he's revealing that he's king and not only king, but a humble king. And so the disciples, they follow Jesus' instruction and they bring the colt to Jesus and it's here where the king is revealed. It's here where his triumphal entry begins. Look at verse seven and eight. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Why are they spreading cloaks on the road and, and leafy branches? Well, the cloaks being placed on the road in which Jesus rode over was a sign of submission on the part of the people. It was an act of allegiance. It was to declare visibly, you are our king, and we will submit to your rule and reign. This happens in 2 Kings 9, 13, where, where Jehu was declared king. They, they placed their cloaks under his feet. What about the leafy branches, the, the palm branches? Well, these branches uh, symbolized Jewish nationalism and ultimate victory for the people of Israel. They believe that with the coming of Jesus, victory lies over the hill, but they'll soon learn Not in the way they had thought. You see, by laying the palm branches, they were declaring that they believed Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed, the one who would deliver Israel and reestablish the throne of David. We also see that they're proclaiming something in verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. So you would have had people in front of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem and people behind, and they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That word, Hosanna, means to save or save us, grant us salvation. You see, in that declaration, they believed that Jesus had come to deliver them. He's the Savior. He's Hosanna. And then when they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're actually quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26, which is, which is a messianic psalm. Zo- the, mes- the Messiah in Psalm 118 overcomes the nations, and he comes to the temple where the people begin to declare their blessing upon him. The king is victorious. That's what Psalm 118 is all about. And that's why they're laying the palm branches down. The king is victorious. He has conquered the nations. Victory is ours. You see, if Psalm 2 is the establishment of the messianic king, right, where God says to his son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. If Psalm 2 is the establishment of the king, Psalm 118 is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The king has come. He has overcome the nations, and the people are eager to receive and bless his name from the holy temple. This is most likely, at least partly, what the people were thinking. I mean, this is why they say in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They really believed that with the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom of Israel was going to be reestablished. They really think Jesus is about to reestablish the throne of David and the kingdom of God. And they were, in fact, partly right. Partly right. Jesus was going to save his people. Jesus was going to establish the kingdom, but not in the way they expected. Jesus is entering Jerusalem at the beginning of the week of Passover. What are they celebrating at Passover? They're remembering and celebrating the great exodus, God delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And now with the coming of Jesus, they believe that he's going to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. It's going to be another exodus. Everything they declare here about Jesus is true, but their understanding was not complete. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the savior, but he didn't come to fundamentally deliver Israel from Rome, but rather to deliver Israel from Satan, sin and death. You see, Israel expected a kingly political Messiah that would use power and strength to deliver Israel from their enemies just like God delivered Israel through Moses with great power and strength through the ten plagues and the great exodus. But, but, what was the fundamental reason for why Israel was delivered and Egypt was not? What was the fundamental reason for why Israel was delivered and Egypt was not? Was it the 10 plagues? No. Was it the crossing of the Red Sea? No, as important as that was. The fundamental reason for why Israel was delivered and Egypt wasn't was because of the blood of the lamb. The deliverance of Egypt from, from, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt hinged Upon the blood of the Lamb, over their doorposts. And Israel crying, Hosanna, save us, here with the coming of Jesus, they did not understand the way in which he would deliver them. Not from Rome's oppression, but from their sins by his own blood, the blood of the Lamb. The Messiah, the king of Israel, would not just be the king, but also the sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant. As John declares in his gospel, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so how Israel responds to Jesus in this moment is appropriate and right. He is the Messiah. He is the king and the savior. They just didn't grasp the fullness of what all that meant. Even the 12 disciples didn't fully grasp it until after Jesus had been resurrected. And so here, Jesus reveals himself as the king, and the people respond rightly to him. But what are some truths from this story that we need to hear this morning? What are some truths that will benefit us? Well, the first is this. Like many of the Israelites... We need to throw our cloaks to the ground, declaring our allegiance to the king. What they did was a proper response. They laid their cloaks on the ground, declaring him king and saying, you are our king. We submit and give our allegiance to you. And Jesus friends is not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of creation and he's worthy of your allegiance and devotion. He is your king, whether you acknowledge it or not, because he created you. There is only one proper response to Jesus, and that is bowing the knee to him as king of kings and lord of lords. As Methodius declared, instead of our garments, let us spread our hearts before him. Secondly, Each of us need to be delivered, but not from what we think. Israel believed they needed to be delivered by Jesus, but what they thought they needed to be delivered from was wrong. They thought what they needed more than anything else was to be delivered from Roman oppression, not realizing what they needed most fundamentally was to be delivered from their own sin their greatest problem wasn't the oppression of rome their greatest problem is that they were sinners before a holy god and that is true of us as well we have the same problem today as well many people believe they need to be delivered from all sorts of things many people think we we most fundamentally need deliverance from, from climate change. And so we, we look to the government to save our planet. Many people believe that what they, they need to most fundamentally be delivered from is, is colonial European oppression or systemic racism or the list could go on and on about all the things that people feel they need to be most fundamentally delivered from and not discounting discounting anyone's experience on any of these things but hear me you can solve climate change and still die in your sins you can deliver society from colonialism and still die in your sins you can attempt to end systemic racism and still die in your sins what you and i most fundamentally need is to be delivered from our sins. People do not face the righteous judgment of God because of the sins of others. People face the righteous judgment of God because of their own sin. And only Jesus is able to deliver you from your sins. So cry out to him, Hosanna, save me from my sins. Thirdly, Each of us need to be ready. Each of us need to be ready, for Jesus is coming again, and he will in fact make war on his enemies and judge the nations in righteousness. The Jews were not wrong in believing that the Messiah would conquer his enemies, judge the nations, and reestablish the throne of David. What they were wrong about was the timing What Israel longed for at that time is what we long for today as followers of Jesus. We long for the return of the king, where he will put an end to all evil and establish justice, righteousness, and peace. But if you have not been delivered from your sins through the forgiveness of Jesus, it means you are not ready for that great day because he is coming to righteously judge all peoples. And if you have not been delivered from your sins, forgiven by the blood of Christ, you will not escape his judgment. In Revelation six, we're given a very small glimpse into that great day of Christ's judgment upon the wicked. And this is what we read in Revelation 6:15 to 17. The wicked would rather have rocks to fall upon them than to have to face the righteous wrath of the Lamb. They're not ready for the return of the coming of the King. Are you, this morning, ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Have you been delivered from your sins? Fourthly, if you're a follower of Jesus, that is, you've been saved by his grace, then the proper response to this truth this morning that Jesus is Hosanna, the King of Israel, the proper response is to respond like Israel did, to rejoice, to praise his name because of his victory, not over Roman oppression, but victory over sin, death, and the devil. His death and resurrection was his victory over sin and death and the devil. His death and resurrection was our victory over sin, death, and the devil. We ought to raise our palm branches in victory. You see, one chapter later in Revelation 7, you have a completely different picture than the end of Revelation 6, where people are crying out for rocks to fall on them than having to face God's wrath. In Revelation 7, there's, there's a multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue standing before the throne of God and worshiping Him. And what's the difference between the two groups? What's the difference between the the people at the end of Revelation 6 who are crying out for mountains to fall upon them than having to face God's judgment and and those who are now in Revelation 7 standing before God's throne worshiping and, and delighting and praising in Him. What's the difference between these two groups? Well, Revelation 7, 9 to 17 tells us, After this I looked, this is John again, Behold, A great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and look at this with palm branches in their hands they're crying out victory they cried out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to them, sir, you know, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And here's the difference between those in Revelation 6 and those who are here in Revelation 7. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The difference between being the individual in Revelation 6 who cries out for the mountains to fall on them than to have to face God's judgment. And those who are standing before the throne of God, worshiping and enjoying God, the difference is this, they have been washed in the blood of the lamb. They have embraced the king of kings, the sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And therefore, verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. See, like the Israelites, when Jesus first entered Jerusalem on a donkey, crying out victory by laying their palm branches down, we as Christians have all the more reason to rejoice because Jesus has conquered and delivered us from sin, death, and the devil. We can cry out victory because the King has delivered us from our sins. And so will you this day, Give your allegiance to Jesus. Will you this day cry out to him, Hosanna, save me from my sins? Are you ready for the return of the king? If you can answer yes to all of these questions, then rejoice because you have the victory in Jesus. Let me pray for us father we thank you for your word and we thank you for our king jesus who came into this world as a humble king and laid down his life as a sacrificial lamb for our sins in our place and lord we long for his return we long for his return when we he will bring justice and establish righteousness upon the earth and peace to all the nations We look forward to that day, and we pray that you would help us to live our lives in light of that great day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.